Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and as I was thinking about this Sunday and next Sunday, obviously Christmas Eve next Sunday, I honestly couldn't bring myself to preach on false teachers this morning. I was thinking about looking through that next text and didn't feel like it was appropriate to address heretics and adulterers and dogs returning to their vomit and pigs going back to their, you know, their, their sludge. Didn't seem very Christmassy to me. And uh, got into the Christmas mood, the Christmas spirit through that concert that we had this week. And this was the text that I mentioned and read uh, to our guests uh, this week and didn't have time to, to really unpack it, um, but it's such a rich uh, text, and so I thought we should just put our study on, uh, of Second Peter uh, on a hold, and we'll jump back into that uh, chapter 2 section there on false teachers uh, come the first of the year. But this morning, I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a text that I assume is familiar to most of you. Uh, we've gone over it before in the past, and just uh, when, especially when we talked through uh, this great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, but I thought it would be good for us to, to reconsider it this morning. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we come to you this morning, and this text is truly mind-blowing, and we could spend weeks, if not months, studying this text and still not begin to plumb the depths of it. And so I ask, Lord, in the brief amount of time we have this morning that your Spirit would come now and illuminate us to understand what Paul meant by these words, that we would understand them accurately, and that we would also see the practical nature of these verses for our lives today, not just for Christmas time, but all year round when it comes to relating to one another in a humble, selfless way. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, anyone familiar with classic Christmas music knows that every Christmas time in churches and concert halls around the world, congregations and choirs sing the famous oratorio known as Handel's Messiah, which is the most widely performed piece of music in history. Uh, there's a powerful story behind the writing of the Messiah. Uh, this, the year was 1741, and as, as a result of financial failure and, and uh, physical ailments, George Frederick Handel was financially broke and emotionally broken. 
And so one night amidst his despair, he wandered the lonely streets of London, and it was almost dawn when he finally returned to a shabby uh, place where he lived, and he found a, a thick envelope on the table there, and it was from a friend of his, a, a man by the name of Charles Jennings, who compiled the text for all of Handel's compositions. And so Handel examined the pages. He found them covered with texts of scripture about the birth, death, and return of Jesus Christ. And he was so tired from being up all night, he just kind of tossed them aside and he crawled into bed, but he couldn't sleep. And the words that he had read kept resonating in his heart and his mind. And these were the words, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, glory to God in the highest, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so feeling inspired, he got up and went to his piano, he began to write, and the music just flowed from his heart, rich and majestic and triumphant, and so he feverishly worked night and day for three weeks without stopping, it says, to eat or drink or to sleep. He refused to see anyone until at last his assistant managed to gain entrance on the day that the work was accomplished, and the great composer was there at his piano, sheets of music strewn all over the place, and he was sobbing uncontrollably. And his assistant asked him, what's wrong? And Handel held up the score to the Hallelujah Chorus, the most well-known movement of the piece of Handel's Messiah, and he said this, quote, I do believe I have seen all of heaven before me and the great God himself. Whether I was in the body or out of my body, when I wrote it, I know not. And the result of his experience with God there as he labored uh, there at his piano is a dramatic three-part commentary on the prophecy and fulfillment of God's plan of redemption through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Now, over 1,600 years before Handel ever composed the Messiah, the Apostle Paul composed this letter to the church in Philippi that contains this text, which is one of the greatest descriptions of God's plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, that's ever been written. And some commentators actually consider this the crowning Christological text in all of Paul's writings. Some say perhaps in all of Scripture. You've got John 1, of course, the Word becoming flesh, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Um, but this one is right up there. And, and really, what I love about this passage, it's the entire Christmas story in a nutshell, which as we saw, if you came to the concert uh, this week, and as we'll see in this text, that the Christmas story is far more than a baby being born in a manger. It's more than a starry night and angels singing and shepherds uh, being amazed and visiting the child uh, in the nativity and the, the wise men. I mean, if that's all that we focus on during the holidays, then really the story of Christ's birth is just another sappy, sentimental story like Charlie Brown's Christmas or Rudolph of the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Grinch that sold Christmas, you name it, right? Your favorite little Christmas story. But the real message of Christmas goes far deeper than what we typically think about at this time of year. 
the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ was just the beginning of the grand plan of salvation to save mankind from their sin. And so in order for us to understand and appreciate the significance of Christ's birth, we need to see it as just one piece or movement in this great drama of redemption. Christ's birth is not a standalone thing. It's it's connected to his death, uh, his resurrection, and also his return. And so really, Christmas is just uh, an opportunity for us to watch the first act of this three-act play. God's saga of salvation really unfolds in three magnificent acts or three magnificent scenes. The first scene is set in a humble manger in Bethlehem. The second scene is set on a skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem. And the third scene is set in a glorious throne room in heaven. And these magnificent verses here in Philippians chapter 2 tell the whole story of how God, in the person of his son Jesus, left the glories of heaven and he came to earth in the form of a human being as as a child to grow up and to live the life that all of us fail to live, that perfect life that God requires of us, and then to die the death that, that all of us deserve to die. And then how God raised him from the dead and restored him to his rightful place in heaven. Before we dive into the text, though, we need to look at the context. And we need to understand that, that Paul didn't include this Christological gem in this letter to instruct the Philippian believers in theology so much as to just give them a practical example to help them get along with one another. And the rich theology about the the person and work of Christ in verses 5 through 11 are really uh, just simply almost an incidental illustration of the command that he gave to his readers in verses 3 and 4. And again, just look at the context here. Maybe start in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so we know that one of the themes of Philippians is is unity. And so for some reason, uh, the unity was being threatened there in the church, And we get, a, I guess, a a sneak peek into why in verse 3. He says, do nothing from what? Selfishness or empty conceit or pride, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So selfishness and pride were disrupting the relationships within the church and threatening the unity of the church. And so in order to press home this exhortation to humbly and selflessly serve one another, Paul provided this unforgettable example of selfless humility, which was all about Christ's condescension and his subsequent coronation. And the verses that follow here really could be summarized in three simple words. There's a cradle, there's a cross, and there's a crown. And all three of these are included or implied in the narratives that we've been reading about uh, in the Gospels, the Christmas story in Matthew and, and Luke. 
which we'll touch on here um, from time to time as we go through this text. So let's take a look, a closer look now at this, this majestic description of the incarnation of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. So first of all, the cradle. The cradle. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. First, very important truth to understand, Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. Notice this, who although he existed already in the form of God, this is a reference to the pre-existent state of the second member of the Trinity in eternity past. We know him as Jesus. And that word form, he was existed in the form of God. In the original Greek means an outward manifestation of an inward reality. In other words, Jesus didn't merely resemble God. He actually was God. And Jesus has always been and will always be completely coexistent, co-eternal, and co-equal with the Father. And there's many verses in the Bible that make that very clear, undeniably clear, unmistakably clear. For example, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know Jesus claimed to be equal to the Father and that was not a misunderstanding on our part because that's exactly how the Jews understood what he was saying about himself and that's why they wanted to kill him. John 5, 18, John 10, 30, uh, talk about that. Colossians is another uh, Place we see the, the deity of, of, of Christ here. Um, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1 verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. I was talking to somebody after first service, and we, it was just a, a mind-blowing thought that, that when Jesus was that little baby in that feeding trough, while he was completely helpless from a human perspective, in light of his deity, he was upholding all things by the word of his power at that very moment. Again, what does Paul say here? Notice back in Philippians chapter 2, he says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, it's not that he denied that he was equal with God. We know he didn't. It's very clear. He said, oh, I, I and the Father are one. So what, is, what did Paul mean? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That even though Jesus has always been God, he did not 
cling to or hold on to his position or insist on his rights and his privileges. He could have refused to to leave the glory and majesty that he enjoyed in heaven, but instead he willingly renounced his rights, renounced his privileges as God, and uh, or or you could say it this way: uh, he temporarily relinquished or laid aside his position in heaven, but it didn't affect his person. It didn't affect who he really was. You're probably familiar with the story of the prince and the pauper, the classic children's story about a. Uh, a, a prince who met a, a little orphan boy, a little pauper, a little poor boy, and, and they were surprised at their likeness to one another. And uh, they said, hey, why don't we switch places? And, and the prince wanted to feel what it was like to be a poor boy in his little village where his dad reigned. And, and that little poor boy wanted to see what it was like to be a, the, the son of a king. And so they swapped places. And, and while that Prince looked like and acted like, right? He was the little poor boy. He was still the prince. It never changed who he was. He was always the, the, the son of the king. And that was true of Jesus. While he was here on this earth, he never insisted or demanded to be treated with the honor and glory that are rightfully his. While he was on earth, he never used his divine power, powers or prerogatives for his own personal advantage. I mean, he could have turned stones into bread to satisfy his hunger, but he didn't. He could have jumped off the temple without getting hurt, but he didn't. He could have called legions of angels to rescue him from being arrested and killed, but he didn't. He gave up the independent use and display of his divine power and glory. In other words, he limited how and when he visibly manifested his splendor and his majesty according to the will of the Father. And it was all about the will of the Father for Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You remember the wrestling match in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and here, there we see Jesus' humanity coming out when he said, not my will, but what? Yours be done. I'm here to do your will, God. And then we come to the, probably the trickiest phrase in this whole text and that is this, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? What does it say in your Bible? Verse 7. You got your Bibles open? Are you with me? Where are you? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. This is the Greek word ekonosin, where we get the word kenosis. And we need to be very careful here when interpreting this phrase, specifically that we don't ever make it mean that Jesus was somehow not fully God. And let let me be clear at the very beginning before we try to unpack this a little bit, Jesus never stopped being God when he became a man. It's impossible for Jesus to give up his deity 
And any explanation of this phrase that diminishes Christ's deity is heretical. And I think I found it interesting as I've been studying Second uh, Peter 2 and some of the commentaries mention that where a lot of false teachers uh, go rogue is here in Philippians chapter 2. The, 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 it's, 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 you know, they, they, you might do some reading online and you think the whole idea of kenosis is bad or wrong because it's really been hijacked by false teachers. Uh, and it's more, it's probably better to call it the kenotic theory. That, that's the heretical part of the kenosis, right? It's, it's called, it's referred to as the kenotic theory. And so what, what are we saying here? What was Paul saying here? Jesus emptied himself of what? Not his divine attributes, but his divine rights and privileges. Not, not for one moment during his life on earth did Jesus ever not possess all the attributes of God. But again, he limited the use of that, of them. He subjected himself to human limitations, but he remained omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. That's why he did miracles and he read people's minds. He traveled long distances. He walked on water. His glory and majesty were still there. It was just hidden or veiled by human flesh. And that's why we love the story of the transfiguration. We looked at it a couple weeks ago where Jesus peeled back his flesh, if you will, kind of did the Superman thing, right? And, and, and it showed uh, uh, Peter, James, and John who he really was. Heard the voice from heaven, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased with. One commentator said it this way, in emptying himself, Jesus voluntarily agreed to be born into this world a totally dependent, helpless baby. Think about that for a moment. The sovereign of the universe, helpless, deity un umbilically dependent, the divine word unable to utter one word. The Alpha and Omega had to learn how to feed himself, how to put his toys away and clean up his room. The mighty God had to take naps because he got tired. And again, I think where the false, false teachers um, err is they want to make living like Jesus doable for you and me. And, and if he was God, fully God, well, well that's not fair. He, you know, the deck's stacked against us because, you know, we, we're supposed to be like Jesus. Uh, well, we're not God. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, what they say, well, he actually was a man and everything he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit in him uh, and, and you have that same Holy Spirit and so that's, you know, they, they want to kind of bring Jesus down a bit so that we can live like him uh, and live the way he lived uh, instead of going, well, we, we really aren't like Jesus, <laughs> okay? He had something going for him that we don't. He was God. Um, again, we need to be extremely careful in how we explain this phrase, emptied himself. And I think Paul helped us here. No, no need to go outside of the scriptures to just define what that meant because the following four phrases in verses seven and eight give, I think, the best explanation of what emptied himself means. Notice he says, but emptied himself, number one, taking the form of a bondservant, Taking on something is a term of addition rather than subtraction. And I think that's, that's helpful that, that, the, that the incarnation was not a subtraction of anything. 
of who God was, uh, who, who Jesus was. It, it was an addition of what? Humanity. Jesus never surrendered or gave up his deity, but he took on an additional nature. He came to earth as a slave whose main task was to serve others. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man had not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So just like a slave, Jesus didn't own anything. He didn't own a home, a, a business, a boat, a, 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 a car, a, a horse, you name it. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Had to borrow a room to celebrate the Last Supper. He, he was even buried in a borrowed tomb. So he, he took the form of a bondservant. Secondly, he was made in the likeness of men. Which is interesting because Genesis 1 says that God made us in his likeness. And now it seems that what Paul is saying, he made himself like us. He became one of us. He was born just like us. He grew up in a family with a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters like us, and he learned to trade like we do. He was hungry and thirsty and got tired like us, and he rejoiced at weddings, and he cried at funerals just like we do. I think if you pass by Jesus back in the day in which he lived, you wouldn't notice anything unique about him. He wouldn't have stood out in the crowd necessarily. He looked like every other face in the crowd. He didn't walk around with a perpetual halo over his head like so many times he's depicted in, in, in paintings. But while he was truly a man, he was not merely a man. Jesus was a, a real, live human being with one exception. He was without what? Sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And so he took on all the frailties, all the problems that come with living in a sin-cursed body and a sin-cursed world, and yet he never sinned. The third thing Paul said here is he was found in appearance as a man. He was found in appearance as a man. He, he looked human, but he was more than human. While he appeared outwardly to be no different from, from any other person, he had a divine nature encased in human flesh. And he wasn't, that doesn't mean he was half man, half God. He was fully man and fully God. 100% man, 100% God. You say, that doesn't make any sense. You're right. To us, that makes no sense. How could, that's impossible from a human perspective. But with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. And so this is what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union, one person with two natures. And we have to come up with these fancy terms because it's like, what are you gonna call that? That's, that's a mystery, I don't understand that. Well, let's call it this. And just kind of leave it over there in the corner and go, okay, let's not go too deep into that because it's just going to make our mind blow up if we try to overthink that. But we put it in the category of things like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and the doctrine of election and things that, that at the end of the day make no logical sense to us, right? But we have to accept by faith because it's there in the scriptures. And so if it says it, we believe it, even though we may not understand it fully. 
In the account that um, Tom read earlier, Matthew chapter 1, we, we see this tension here, and you know, it, it reads just like a, a normal story about a baby being born, but there's definitely some, uh, a lot of theology going on behind the scenes here when it, when it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by who? The Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he goes on to quote uh, Micah there. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And then that same angel, I believe, Gabriel, had already told Mary that in Luke chapter 1. Came to her, um, told her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And she says, how's that going to happen? I'm a virgin. And... Luke one thirty five. the answer, the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of Joseph. Is that what it says? No, the Son of God. That's the point. This is God's Son. This is not Joseph's Son. This is God's Son. And, and this is the point. The virgin birth is the only way for Jesus to have a heavenly father and a human mother which was imperative. It had to be that way. If Jesus had a human father, he, wouldn't, he would have inherited Adam's sin nature, which means he wouldn't have been a perfect, unblemished sacrifice that would satisfy God's judgment for sin. At the same time, Jesus needed a human mother in order to qualify as a representative of the human race who could die in our place. So in order to carry out God's plan of salvation, Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. And if he was anything less, then it would have been impossible for him to save us from our sin. That's just scratching the surface about the incarnation. Okay, a lot more we could say about that. But let's turn now to the cross. We've seen the cradle. Now let's look at the cross and the crucifixion of Christ. Again, back uh, in Philippians chapter 2. Notice how Paul goes on here. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that Jesus became obedient to death means he had a choice in the matter. Since he never sinned, he would have never died. And yet he chose to die in obedience to the Father's will. And the death that Jesus was willing to die was no ordinary death. He wasn't allowed to die a a natural death or or even an accidental death. He suffered a violent, wrongful execution. And he could have been beheaded. He could have been stoned. He could have been hung. But instead, he was executed in the worst way imaginable, even death on a cross. Crucifixion. 
was perhaps the cruelest, most excruciatingly painful, shameful form of execution ever designed by man. Originally devised by the ancient Persians and Phoenicians, later perfected by the Romans as a form of capital punishment. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion because it was considered so, considered so disgraceful. Jews considered anyone who, ever, who was ever crucified to be under the curse of God, that God was uh, showing that they, he was excommunicating them from his covenant people. In fact, that's what he said back in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not, ha- his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed by God. And Paul was the one who quoted that in Galatians, that same verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Spirit of God had to bring Paul to that point where he understood that. Because initially, I think the crucifixion was the big hang-up for Paul, as it would have been for any devout Jew who knew their Old Testament, that how can the guy who's claiming to be God be killed and hung on a tree? It's clearly, he's, he's in contradict, contradicting the scriptures themselves that say anybody that's hanged on a tree is, is accursed by God. So how could God be accursed by God? One commentator said it well, what bothered Paul the most before he was converted was the cross. To him, the cross was the most impossible thing about Christianity. What seemed most outrageous to Paul was that the one who claimed to be God, manifest in the flesh, should die on a cross. The manner of Christ's death is what rendered his claim impossible in Paul's mind. The idea that the man who claimed to be Israel's Messiah should die and accursed death was not just outrageous, it was blasphemous. What seemed the most impossible thing about Christianity for Paul became the most impressive thing about Christianity. I think that's part of what's involved here when he wrote even death on a cross. Because after Paul had come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his horse and blinded him, the cross no longer tripped Paul up. It's what he boasted in, what he boldly preached. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to tip his hat, if you will, to, uh, to the, his fellow Jews, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. And I love how he said it in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. And then in Galatians 6, 14. Galatians 6, 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the, what? Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Jesus had to die. That was 
all part of God's plan. And I think how interesting, how ironic that according to Luke chapter 2, the first people who heard the, the good news about the birth of Christ and were commissioned by the angels to spread the good news that the Messiah, the Christ child had been born, were who? The shepherds. And according to Jewish tradition, these shepherds watched over a special flock of sheep. Because of its proximity to, to Jerusalem, those, uh, it's called the shepherd's fields. If you go to Israel, it's kind of right between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And uh, it, it was in that region where the sheep that were raised there uh, were raised for one purpose, and they were to be the sacrificial lambs. They were the, the lambs, the sheep that were that were uh, sacrificed in the temple just a few miles away. And so it's likely that, that these very shepherds were tending lambs that would one day be slaughtered on the altar to atone for the sins of the Jewish people. And so how appropriate it was that they were the first to hear the good news of the birth of the ultimate Lamb of God who would one day sacrifice himself on a cross to atone for the sins of his people. So that's the cradle and that's the cross. Now let's look finally at the crown. The crown, the exaltation of Christ. Verse nine, for this reason also, what reason? Well, because of everything that Jesus was willing to do, uh, starting in verse six, uh, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. He was willing to, uh, humble himself to exchange the praise and glory of heaven for the pain and grief of this earth. And because of that, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God the Father rewarded his son for his humble obedience by exalting him to the highest place of honor. This word exalted there, highly exalted, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It literally means super exalted. Whatever that means, <laughs> super exalted his son, Jesus. And I think there's four elements, really, of Christ's exaltation. It, it began with his resurrection and then moved to his ascension and then to his coronation as the king of kings, right, and lord of lords, and now uh, serving as our intercessor. Paul wrote elsewhere about this exaltation uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, talking about the power of God, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The exaltation of Christ was um, near and dear to the heart of the writer of Hebrews, mentions it often, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 4, verse 14, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, just remember, you've got a guy in heaven who's been there and done that. He's, he's, he's been down here. He, he knows what it's like to, to live you know, to walk a mile in your shoes, if you will. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also, talking about Christ, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then... Hebrews 12, 2, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the son not only resumed his former glory with the father, which he had mentioned in the high priestly prayer, John 17, uh, asking the Father to restore him to his glory along with him in heaven. But he also received added glory, added honor, added praise for triumphing over sin and death. Again, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So, what did this exaltation include? Again, back in Philippians chapter 2, it says that God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Which, by the way, God's son has lots of names in Scripture, including Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Ancient of Days, Alpha Omega. But I think he was referring specifically to what name, he says in the next verse, so that at the name of what? Jesus. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus was the name that the angel told Joseph to give to their son, Jesus, because he would take uh, away the sins of the people. Um, that's not, didn't sound right. Let me say it how the Bible says it. <laughs> for she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so, we know there's no other name given among men whereby men can be saved, where we can be saved, but the name of Jesus, right? Acts talks about that. And so it would perhaps be natural just to kind of assume, yeah, Jesus, name above every name, leave it at that. But I think there is more going on here because if you look further in verse 10, he says... Um, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may not see uh, this because they don't italicize it or, or bold it like 
is often the case when somebody quotes the Old Testament. But, but Paul was borrowing the words of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 uh, really is God giving the, the most direct and for, forceful statement in the entire Old Testament of his supreme power, his sovereign rule over all things. And, and it climaxes in the last few verses. Isaiah 45, verse 22. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. That sound familiar? That's exactly what Paul was talking, saying here. And so perhaps what Paul was saying is that God transferred to Christ the universal homage which he had claimed for himself. In other words, there's only one name that has ever been given that is greater or above every other name. What is God's name in the Old Testament in particular? Yahweh, which in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the way they translated it as the word kurios, which is the word for what? Lord. So that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, another evidence of the deity of Christ. Paul has no problem ascribing to him, right, the name of Jesus alongside Yahweh, the Lord. What does it mean to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? It means to acknowledge or to affirm or to agree with. We talk about, what does it mean to confess sin? It's you, you, you agree with God. You say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? You say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus that he's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He has the right to rule over you. Everyone, everywhere is subject to Christ's lordship. And he includes a list here of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every intelligent, rational being in the entire universe will one day acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Angels and saints in heaven, every person on earth, demons and the damned in hell. And the point is this, Christ is Lord over your life whether you admit it or not. He is Lord over your life whether you like it or not. You can't deny it, you can't resist it. Well, I guess I could say it the other way, you, you can deny it. You can resist it, but it doesn't fa- change the fact that it's true. It reminds me of the last couple of presidential elections in our country where people have not, um, just they've had a difficult time accepting the results <laughs> of the election. And uh, they have a hard time submitting to the fact that the person in the White House is actually the president. And a little phrase has become popular in our day. It's not my president. Not my president, right? 
the, 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 the Democrats were saying that for a little while, and then all of a sudden the, the Democrats are saying that now, and, or, or vice versa, Republicans are saying that now, um, back and forth, right? He's not my president. Well, it doesn't matter how much you don't like it or how much you rail against it. You have no choice but to accept it and submit to it. It is what it is. And in similar fashion, those who deny the claims of Christ and go through life saying, Jesus is not my Lord, not my Lord, will one day be forced to bow their knee to him and confess that he is Lord, albeit unwillingly and bitterly because at that point it will be too late. Every soul from every age will confess that Jesus is Lord for all eternity in one of two places, either in heaven or in hell. You name it, Pilate, Nero, Hitler, Osama bin Laden, you, you fill in the blank. Satan himself, who has blinded the minds of so many that they can't see that Jesus is Lord, will all one day bow the knee to Christ. And so the answer to the question where we will spend eternity is really determined by when we admit and submit to the authority of Christ. And how much better to willingly and gladly commit our life to Christ as our Lord and Savior now in what the Bible calls the day of salvation rather than wait for the day of judgment when it won't make any difference to the eternal state of your soul. But if you act today, it will make a difference. And you'll be saved from your sin and from death and hell. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice the last phrase, don't want to skip that, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The purpose of Christ's exaltation was ultimately to glorify God. John 13 John 13, this is what Jesus said uh, in the upper room right after Judas departed to go betray him. John 13, verse 31, therefore when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to Christ, then, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. It's interesting, the, the guys who bring up the, the rear, if you will, of the Christmas story, are the Magi? Um, they're, they're typically the last guys. Uh, the last guys mentioned in the story, and, and rightfully so, because according to Matthew chapter two, uh, they didn't come. They weren't there at Christ's birth. They were there probably a year or two after when Jesus was a toddler. And so here, are these Magi, these wise men, traveled hundreds of miles to worship Christ. 
to worship Jesus and to bring him gifts fit for a king, likely in response to studying the, the precise prophecies of their ancient predecessor, who was who? They came from the east. Who was called a magi in the Old Testament? Daniel. He was included in this group of men called magi who would study astrology and uh, I should say astronomy and, and, and the, the stars and all those things and, and uh, ancient writings. And uh, I think that these magi had gotten a hold of Daniel's writings that were left there uh, behind in, 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 in the, 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 after the Babylonian Empire, the, the Medes and the Persians, and now the, the Roman Empire, they were there. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do you remember what they said when they showed up in Jerusalem? They went to the king at the time, Herod, and said, hey, we heard there was a king born here. That was the first Herod had heard about. I was like, what are you talking about? What king? I'm the king. He's like, no, no, we, there's this prophecy about a king, and, and we, we put the pieces together, and it's, it's now. He's somewhere. And as you know, Herod went on a wild, in a wild rage, went on a, on a killing rampage and slaughtered all the, the males um, in Bethlehem, two years, right, two years old and younger because he was jealous of that new king. Well, the Magi came, I think, in response to that prophecy of a king who was going to have a kingdom that would last forever. And he, whoever he was, he was worthy to be worshipped. And so Daniel's prophecy of a coming king who would reign forevermore, I think, brings us back to where we started this morning, and that, that is what so moved Handel as he composed the Messiah. Now, those of you that have been at a concert or at a church service where Handel's Messiah was sung, and they get to the hallelujah chorus, right, the climactic crescendo part of the, the presentation, what did you do? You stood up. Or at least everybody else stood up around. You're like, oh, I'm supposed to stand up? And everybody stood up. And you're like, why are we all standing up? It's interesting how that tradition came to be. The night that Handel's Messiah premiered in a charity event at the Music Hall of Dublin, King George II of Great Britain was in attendance. And when the first triumphant notes of the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, King George stood to his feet and he remained standing for the duration of the the performance. And in those days, royal protocol required that whenever the king stood, so did everyone else in his presence. And so everyone's like, oh, the king's standing. We got to stand up. So they all stood up. And so the entire audience and, and even the orchestra stood up as well, initiating a tradition that has lasted more than two centuries. Some say, well, he just, the king had gout and, you know, he was uncomfortable and so that was just a good point. He was kind of been, you know, it's kind of towards the end. He needed to get some relief for his feet, his legs. I don't believe that. A lot of other people don't believe that. I believe that the king himself was following royal pro protocol by standing in the presence of the king, the king of kings, 
and the Lord of Lords. And this was his way of humbling, acknowledging that even, even he, the King of Britain, was subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a great lesson for all of us to consider there. That though Jesus came to this earth as a baby, he will one day return to this earth as a king. And that's why all of us need to confess his lordship over us now and commit our lives to obey and serve him now, which ultimately brings glory and honor to God, which, by the way, is why we were born to begin with, was to bring God glory and honor. And we do that by confessing his son Jesus as Lord of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to kind of scratch the surface a bit on, on so much truth here, such rich doctrine in this text. But Lord, I just would ask for those who might be here this morning that have never confessed Jesus as Lord of their life. Lord, your word says they can't do that except by the Holy Spirit. And so would your spirit work in their heart, granting them repentance, a willingness to turn from their sin, granting them faith to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did and was the mediator between you and, and, and us. And, and he's the only way to be made right with you. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that this text would provide us much food for thought, much... Um, much, a lot of things just to meditate on, to, to mull over, to chew on these next couple of weeks as we approach Christmas. Things that we could talk about with our spouses and our children and our brothers and sisters in the Lord and that uh, this would be something that just really defines this next week and a half as we move towards uh, Christmas Day where we celebrate the birth of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.